Hey guys, welcome to the Bruise Less Traveled podcast. Today, I spoke with Bert Mooney, the Director of Operations at Strange Roots Experimental Ales and the founder, Dennis Hawk. This episode was really, really special to me. I mean, I am kind of a nerd when we get to talk about yeast and different styles of fermenting, but these guys had such passion and zest for doing these wild fermentation ales and spontaneously fermented beers. I was so inspired. It's rare that I say that I could sit and talk for hours with someone, to be honest, but truly I could have sat and talked with them forever. I learned so much. I almost felt like I was in a class, but definitely the most fun class ever because we were tasting one of their delicious beers, their Mortal Eidolon, which is a barrel aged sour. I cannot wait for you guys to check out this episode. Hey everyone. Welcome to the Bruise Less Traveled Beer Club. I am your craft beer loving host, Molly Lamb. We are continuing our month in Pittsburgh, exploring this wonderful city and all of its craft beer goodness. We're going to be drinking beer from Strange Roots Experimental Ales tonight. They're Mortal Eidolon. It's a barrel aged sour. I'm super excited to learn about barrel aging and kind of how it works specifically with sour ales. I'm pumped about this tonight. I am here with my awesome Pittsburgher buddy and July co host Eric how you doing I'm all right Molly how are you doing tonight I'm good yeah I've had a busy week I'm ready to kick back and get a little sour with this nice funky sour ale yeah me too I love sours and I've been looking forward to this ever since I got I I got the box here so in your box I wanted to mention there we did include some cool stickers I'm a big sticker guy I have a guitar case that's covered with stickers Um, so we have some from strange roots and brew gentlemen I I don't know what to do with this I already have two strange roots stickers on my guitar case so I feel like I should do something different with this one and I have a shirt too so I got a lot of strange roots stuff these strange roots beers are you know a little bit more assertive um a little bit more sort of flavorful i'll say and they had a uh, a great cook there their food was was amazing um that was all very sort of fatty and rich at the same time so it sort of was a lot of smoked meats smoked brisket smoked pork that sort of thing sometimes with jalapenos they even have a great stoner taco that has smoking hot no not, not the flaming hot cheetos the uh the other kind of cheetos i'm sure that dennis and and Bert can sort of fill us in on that a little bit more but that paired very nicely with their sort of more aggressive aggressive sours that they're making. Yeah. Well, before we get started here, I do have a question for you, Molly. Yeah. Um, Did you walk across that Brooklyn Bridge yet? I haven't. I've been so busy. So I finally stopped doing facials. For those of you who don't know, tuning in, I am a former skincare esthetician turned craft beer enthusiast and podcast host. I have been running my business for a long time and I just took my last facial client this week and it was kind of a weird feeling, but I'm feeling celebratory. I'm feeling like this is happening on the perfect week of the live stream with a sour ale. I feel like something about sour beers feel kind of celebratory. And I'm sort of feeling that I'm ready to just kind of dive fully into this career and this job that I have in the craft beer world. But it was kind of sad to say goodbye to my business, Skin by Molly, and, you know, kind of move towards something else. So it's been kind of a big week for me, but I feel like going across the Brooklyn Bridge, Eric, would actually be like the, I feel like I need to go and like crack open like a bottle of champagne or like a brute (laughs) IPA. Let's keep it craft beer here, you know, and just really kind of, kind of celebrate it. But yeah, how's your week been? 
Well, that all sounds great. First of all, uh, definitely send me pictures if you do that. I've been in um, in Ocean City, Maryland, for the better part of of the past week or so. Um, which, when you kind of hang out with my family, they're they're not big craft beer people, so it was really a lot of uh, like fruity cocktails sort of thing. Um, so I haven't really had like a craft beer probably since the last time that we did this last week. So I'm definitely jonesing for something that isn't like very fruity and you know whatever. So very excited to uh, to have this one. Other than that, you know, fun times at the beach to be had. Nice. Yeah. Um, and tonight I'm going to be drinking out of my Grimace glass. That's what I've decided on tonight. First, it was Ronald, then Hamburglar, and I got Grimace here because I figured it's sort of it's sort of a nice purplish can, and uh, oh, yeah. I figured that sort of would complement it nicely there. That does actually go well with it. And you sent me a great photo of your Ronald McDonald beer glass collection. And that will be going on my Instagram. I will <laughs> I will let everyone know what my Instagram is. But I am definitely going to post about that because they're such fun glasses. I like that you keep it lighthearted. I think that's awesome. You want to you want to crack open into these beers? Yeah. And before we do that, I'm going to share just a few facts about Pittsburgh with everyone, just so you guys can kind of build your repertoire of Pittsburgh facts. So before we open up a beer, let me let you know a few things. So in 1905, Pittsburgh became the home to the first Nickelodeon or a modern movie theater. I actually had no idea that Nickelodeon was something other than a child's TV station. So I thought that was really cool that it was the home to the first modern movie theater. Well, it's, I have some more info about that um, because it, it was invented by a man named John P. Harris. Uh, I know this because our my college uh, had a film society called the John P. Harris Film Society uh, after the man who invented the Nickelodeon. And even I believe it's still there, but in downtown Pittsburgh, there at least was, you know, 10 years ago, a little sort of a statue statuette of, of a Nickelodeon there sort of as a memorial to where the first Nickelodeon actually was placed. Oh my God, that's so cool. Yeah. yeah. And also St. Louis is known for start the starting point of the Lewis and Clark expedition. The explorers actually first met up in Pittsburgh before heading west on the Ohio River. And as a lot of you learned last week, our guest told us, but just in case you didn't hear it, the Big Mac was invented in the Pittsburgh suburbs. So there's been a lot of inventions in Pittsburgh because also the polio vaccine was invented there too, as we learned in one of our earlier episodes. We have a lot of sandwich related sort of famous things going on. We have the Permanians. We have the Big Mac. Yeah. Pittsburgh likes their sandwiches. All right, Eric, you want to go ahead and crack open this beer and see what this barrel aged sour is all about? Boy, do I. It's a great sound. Possibly my favorite sound in the entire world. Wow. Look at the color in this. So this is a beer that has been conditioned on grape must. So the same sort of skins um, that typically are in, um, you know, uh, red wine. So it definitely has the similar color to it. And it almost even has a similar sort of carbonation, just sort of right out the gate with that, uh, the head on top of it. It almost reminded me of a, sort of a, of a soda or a seltzer a little bit more there. Really started out strong with the carbonation. It's very fizzy. I'm expecting this to be a little bit more almost like a, like a sparkling wine in the mouth feel of it here so color looks amazing it almost looks like red wine it is hard to not use profanity because this beer is so good (laughs) it smells amazing and yeah i see first of all they have amazing can art it's like kind of gothic mexican skull sort of 
like day of the dead, but yeah, yeah, conditioned on grape must. I cannot wait to talk to the guys when they come on in just a little bit and learn more about that. And you get that on the finish, almost like a little bit of like a musty mm-hmm. kind of taste to it. Really effervescent, just kind of pings off your tongue, a little bit of an astringent mouthfeel to it. It kind of dries you out a little bit. It's mm-hmm. super refreshing. Yeah, it really is. And this one is spontaneously fermented. I, I was hesitant to say that earlier just because I wasn't totally sure, but I see on the can it is. It is a blend of spontaneously fermented oak barrel aged ales from uh, 2018 and 2019 aged on Noir Great Must there, just to give you a little bit more details about this beer. But this sort of style really falls in line with uh, what I love about Strange Roots. It sort of has this very unique funk to it that is in is in a lot of their their sour beers even back when they were when they were called dry log which i'll talk about in a little bit um it this is like classic them and it's what everything i love about it I am not normally a huge sour beer person. And I told this to Dennis, who's joining us in a little bit, who's the founder who I had the best time with. This was my favorite brewery visit in Pittsburgh, but I don't normally drink sours. I don't typically like that in a drink as much, but their beers won me over. And Dennis actually sent me home with this bottle of their peach spontaneously fermented sour ale. It was incredible. I love this because I'm from Georgia, the peach state. So that's why he gave it to me. And it almost tasted like unripened peach, like this just strong, sturdy, sour flavor, but with almost like a little bit of bitter to it. It was phenomenal. I had a few of the, the beer Avenger guys over, Eric. I had um I had them over to basically have a party to drink all of the beer out of my fridge before I moved. So I was like, <laughs> I have 20 beers and I cannot drink all this. And this was one of the beers. So big uh, thank you to Dennis when he comes on. I'll have to thank him because it was so good. But yeah, this one clocks in that we are tasting tonight at 5.3 ABV, and it's considered a wild beer, like you mentioned, Eric. Mm -hmm. So a little bit more about wild beers. Wild beer is a type of beer that is typically fermented with yeast, a wild yeast called Britannomyces and bacteria. The bacteria is often found in other foods like cheeses, breads, and yogurts, and it produces acids that give the beer this tart, refreshing flavor profile. And Strange Roots doesn't really make uh, kettle sours or quick sours. They prefer not to use this method, and they rely mostly on a more natural approach. Yeah, that's right. So so Strange Roots actually opened in 2011 under the name Dry Log, which is spelled D-R-A-A-I-L-A-A-G, which I believe is Finnish. I'll have to have them confirm that. Uh, it really just means dry wood, dry log, where it could be a, lo- a lot of their beers were barrel aged and they sort of wanted to pay some tradition to the actual barrel aging process and sort of talk about the wood and sort of bring that to light. I'm sure Dennis and Burke can talk a little bit more about the dry log and sort of why they went in that direction as far as their name but their slogan was wild by design and a lot of their beers focus on wild yeast and spontaneous fermentation which is the process of allowing local microbes that inoculate the beer rather than just pitching single yeast strain manually into the beer to allow the fermentation to start the owner dennis he holds a phd in microbiology and uses his passion for for fungi and uh, micro uh, microflora to drive the creative vision behind dry logs and now Strange Roots, well-respected portfolio of Franco-Belgian-inspired wild ales. I'm having a hard time reading today, Molly. I just can't, like, get words out.
job. And when you're live, you don't know what's going to happen. And that's kind of the fun of it for everyone who gets to tune in <laughs> right now. They can see your Ronald McDonald glasses, your green screen drop in earlier when we were doing a sound check. That's your right. Cat ran up there. So, I mean, I think it's fun. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, you, you're always doing a great job. I'm glad that you pronounced that. Okay. So it's dry log. I had mm-hmm. no idea how to pronounce that because that is not spelled in English. I, I believe that that was part of one of the reasons why they sort of wanted to do a bit of a name change. I know that they sort of very much focused on the sour ales and they sort of wanted to expand their their selection and in that process sort of go through a rebranding um, where, again, because pe- people couldn't say the name necessarily. Um, and so they sort of wanted something a little bit more, you know, that, that spoke to who they are. They're like, let's make this easy for Molly to pronounce. But, uh, <laughs> Strangers is cool because to me, they really exist at this intersection of farmhouse brewing tradition and creative locally driven experimentation. You really kind of feel that when they're there. And just to kind of pick up where you left off on your story about them, Eric. So after six years of brewing and exploring and expanding under their original name, they decided to rebrand, as we were saying, and call themselves Strange Roots Experimental Ales. So under the old brand, they were considered an American wild ale brewery. So this identity brought them success. They were actually one of the most widely distributed breweries in Pittsburgh, and I think maybe still are, but it also pigeonholed them somewhat. And I understand that, you know, sometimes when you get really specific, it can pigeonhole you somewhat. So people associated their brand with really sour, acidic flavors and might've avoided trying beers from them in the future. So rebranding themselves as experimental ales, really it allowed them to brew a much kind of wider variety of styles. So their values haven't changed at all under the new name. Their portfolio has definitely expanded to include personal takes on IPAs, pale ales, saisons, porters, and honestly, whatever crazy imaginative brew they can dream up. So while continuing to brew some of their old favorites under their old name, Strange Roots really hopes to make a name for itself and newly reinvigorate the draft list of high quality craft beers, whether they're wild beers or not. Yeah, that's I mean, and even the new stuff that when I say new, but it's been years now, the newer stuff they're making, the IPAs and everything like that are, are phenomenal. So if you go there, you know, it, you know, sometimes you would go there and expect only sours or as a beer tour guide, I would actually love bringing people there and sort of having them try some of these crazy off the wall beers. Uh, but now you can go there and, you know, if you have a friend who hates sour things like my girlfriend, um, you know, w- they can have loggers, IPAs, everything else there that will definitely satisfy, definitely satisfy that itch for a good craft beer. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't get to try any of their IPAs or anything when I was there. I tried their PB&J. Yeah, so it had like a little kind of almost like peanut powdery flavor to it. And then with some grapes, so it was like a, like a great peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's like one of the most creative beers ever. It's like, it was delicious and it was kind of fun and playful and nostalgic sort of reminded you of your youth and just so drinkable. I'm really impressed by these guys. Now I would love to introduce our guests for today. We have Dennis Hawk, the founder of Strange Roots Experimental Ales and their operations director, Bert Mooney. I cannot wait for you guys to hear this interview. And we always like to start off by asking everyone their craft beer origin story. So Bert, let's start with you. How did you get into craft beer? And then Dennis, you can, you can answer your way as well. 
Yeah, for sure. I um I started homebrewing when I was like 22. Um, I uh, I was playing for a band here in Pittsburgh. A fellow bandmate of mine was a was a chef at the time and still is, and uh, was really just getting started into homebrewing and kind of got me started into it as well. And uh, it just kind of snowballed from there. I love like the creative background in craft beer, and that just kind of really resonated with me. Um, so I started doing that on my own at home, just kind of like making some weird quirky things, uh, figuring out what things went with, with what other flavor profiles. Um, and yeah, so I was, uh, I was working for a restaurant at the time here in Pittsburgh and, uh, started doing a lot of like curated, uh, beer dinners at the time. And I had reached out to, to Dennis and, and the team at the time at Drylog and was putting them on draft at the restaurant that I was working for. And, uh, we got to talking put together a really nice uh, like beer tasting menu uh, at a couple couple events like that and then yeah I just kind of we just kind of started talking and having fun and yeah it just kind of snowballed so yeah here we are <laughs> awesome what about you Dennis how did you get into craft beer um I well I don't think it was necessarily into craft beer before it was the science of how craft beer is made and it was primarily with sour ales. So, um, you know, I was underage at the time. I was about 17 years old and I convinced my mother to let me get a beer kit, but I wouldn't drink any of the beer. And the whole reason of doing that is to understand, you know, uh, the, the, the area that I always went to. So the woods, right? So you would always see the different organ. Well, you wouldn't see them, but ultimately I knew they were there, right? So, uh, Local terroir is what I originally was driven by is, is what organisms are here in Western Pennsylvania that may not be anywhere else in the world. And that always intrigued me. And only through fermentation science can you really find something like that. And uh, so as years progressed, it just turned into, okay, wow, all these different critters can do so many different things and they're very unique individually. Why not make beer with them? And obviously, I was still making beer with it, but then it became more of a let's transition this to a commercial operation. So I don't know. I, you know, that's a, that's usually my story started with the beginnings rather than the end. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so, Dennis, you just mentioned little critters. Yeah. I remember when I hung out with you in Pittsburgh, you told me this really cool story about getting some of these little critters off of like an old antique shelf. Can you explain what the little critters are? And do you mind retelling that story for our audience? Okay, so I think so. it was an antique cabinet. So it was a it was a French monastery cabinet from the 1600s. It was a, no, it was 16th century, 16th century French monastery cabinet. Long story short, a friend of mine said, hey, you like old stuff. You would probably like this. And um, we went down and I saw it and I got this cabinet, not knowing what it was. And I, as soon as my wife saw it, she said to me, this is, uh, I don't think we should have this because of how he got it. He didn't steal it or anything, but it came from a storage facility. And long story short, the guy didn't pay his storage fees, whatever the, you know, it happened. So we called out some antique dealers and it turned out that this cabinet was some sort of a really old piece of furniture from a French monastery. Um, and I was like, that's crazy. So a couple of days go by and it's sitting in my garage and I keep looking at it and keep looking at it. Next thing you know, I start noticing like it has layers of wax. And I called the antique dealer and I talked to him and he said, actually, he said, that could be the, you know, this is the way that they preserved wood way back in the day. They would rub paraffin wax 
on these wooden cabinets or whatever to preserve them. So scientifically, you would think over years of laying down these different layers of wax, it would build up some sort of a cuticle like it would on any type of a plant or anything else, right? So then a couple of days go by and the wheels start turning. And I said, I wonder if, I wonder if when that cabinet was actually put in place, could there have been a time where some sort of eukaryotic yeast cell would have landed on that wood prior to the paraffin wax and is encapsulated uh, in, you know, inside of it. So that started a whole world of experimentation from people from academia that I knew way back when. And I called them because they're the professionals and we developed an experiment. Long story short, we pulled out a yeast strain from underneath those layers of wax, resurrected it and made a beer out of it. And it's called Relic. And I still have a bottle of that in my cellar over yeah. here. So yeah, great. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. It's so unique. It's all the, all of like the, uh, it's almost like balsa wood. That's mm-hmm. the best way I can describe it. It's like a cedar-esque balsa wood that comes out of that funk mm-hmm. that is unknown. I've never tasted it ever before in my entire life. I absolutely love that beer. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to like imagine what like a woody kind of flavor profile in a beer would be. So, and then you feel like that was coming from that yeast you found, giving it. No, this- I know it was. Okay, I, I know it was um, because it was completely sterile when we transferred the sample. So once we transferred the sample, it was in an Erlenmeyer flask and nothing would have ever infected it at that point in time. So it had to have been a strain from underneath that wax layer. The assumption is that the wax layer was laid down individually when the actual cabinet was built. However, I'm not a dendrologist. Well, Molly, if you uh, if you come back to Pittsburgh again, we'll we'll crack open that bottle and we'll, we'll try it out. There you go. Once yeah. you taste it, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that yeah, is I, a celebration drink that I need to have. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so cool! I love it. Was cool. That. It was really neat. Yeah. I mean, Dennis, I've never heard a story like that. As soon as you told me that story, I was like, "You have to come on the podcast." That's like so interesting and i love it because it's like kind of gross but like (laughs) like gnarly and amazing and i love i love that you guys are so experimental and you really take what's in your surroundings yeah we're super nerdy i love it (laughs) to me that's not nerdy that's just like the epitome of cool actually Uh, we uh, thank you and we really dig it you know just trying different things and experimenting and seeing how things work out is always impressive to us So rad. I love it. And so the beer that we're tasting tonight, which I am totally digging, I want to talk just a little bit more about it. So it's barrel aged. What what makes barrel aging unique? And do you feel like it's better for sours to be barrel aged? Well, anymore, it's not unique. There's a lot of people doing barrel aging and it's expanded so vastly, so quickly it's even created a sub-market, which is barrel brokering. Barrel aging is important, in my opinion, to sour beer because the vessel actually breathes. Stainless steel doesn't breathe. Oak does. And there's a reason why that many of the different Belgian and French breweries making these wonderful sour beers since inception, quite frankly, and we learned from them. And what they taught us was, is over time, you would want a vessel to actually breathe because 
Inside that vessel, quite frankly, you have a microbiological symphony. And most people think they're the conductor, but quite frankly, they're more than likely just an observer to it because those organisms are functioning in such a way. So the porosity of the actual wood creates um, like a place for them to thrive and to live. And then the small amount of oxygen that takes place that passes through there feeds that environmental conditions to allow them to create like all these enzymatic changes that makes those specific beers unique. So the vessel itself, because it's breathable, is so important on top of the fact that it harbors these critters. And how many how many um, vessels do you have up there now? Last time I was up, I meant it was what? It was definitely over 100, right? Well, we've called a lot of barrels recently, hmm. and uh, we did that for good reason. So we had at one point in time, what was it, Bert, close to like 350, maybe 400 different vessels. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then we slowly called those back over the years. And the reason that we did that is we wanted to, we slowly transitioned into 100% spontaneously fermented beer from Western Pennsylvania in a very short period of window. So they're creating vintages. And that was our goal from inception. But you can't come right out and do that. You have to build up the environmental conditions. There's a lot of things to take in. And think about it. We invested all that time under dry log and we invested all that time under strange roots to finally get to that piece of the puzzle. And we're here now and we've extracted some really interesting strains that are, in fact, indigenous to this area. And you can only find them here. And that's the exciting part. But it took that long to get that. People look at me and they say, well, that's a very romantic thought specifically, but you're buying a piece of time. You're buying a piece of time. That time will, the terroir conditions will never be the same ever again. And so when you buy it, it's like buying a vintage of wine, you know? Well, Sorry, you, I rambled. No, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, well, since we're started talking about the process and the wild yeast here, um, you know, when I explain you guys to people that are from out of town, that sort of thing, yeah. they kind of think they're like, wait, they're just letting. And they especially because I think you're like in downtown Pittsburgh, you know, they're like they're oh, just yeah. letting things open and just the air in Pittsburgh's going in into their beer. And I'm like, no, no, no. Could you explain a little bit about about how you do the spontaneous fermentation process? Sure. In many ways, how we do it is, is that just like a normal brewing kettle. All the product is manufactured, it's boiled. Rather than send it through some sort of a wort chiller and then into a tank, it's just pumped up to a cool ship. And a cool ship is just a very open vessel, typically lower level. And the idea behind a cool ship is as it cools, you leave windows, doors, whatever open, and the cold air inoculates the the open run. Now, the environmental conditions have to be very specific. So typically you have to be below 50 degrees Fahrenheit. It has to be, usually you want to pick even colder days because that's the time when most vegetative pathogens are very low. But what, what do you do in the summertime? We don't spawn in the summertime. You okay. only spawn in the wintertime. That's gotcha. the only time that you spontaneously ferment, thus making it that more rare because you only have a short window of time to do it. Let's take a beer break. So our guest, Dennis, mentioned the word cool ship. What is a cool ship? 
exactly. So it's a type of brewing vessel traditionally used in the production of beer. It's a broad, open top, flat vessel in which wort cools. Remember, wort is beer before it's actually beer. The high surface to mass ratio of a cool ship allows for a more efficient cooling. Contemporary usage includes any open fermenter used in the production of beer, even when using modern mechanical cooling techniques. Traditionally, cool ships were constructed of wood, but later were lined with iron or copper for better thermal conductivity. The word cool ship was trademarked actually by Allagash Brewing Company. The company later decided to terminate the trademark in the interest of maintaining good relationships with the other people in the craft beer industry. Good for them. Using a cool ship is a gamble for sure, but to make bold beers, you've got to make bold decisions. Let's get back to the show. Does so does air quality matter like to what yes. you're saying? Okay, yeah. So you wouldn't want to do this in a city with a lot of per- pollution. You guys yeah. are a little bit further well, outside of town where I visit. I don't know that necessarily because I don't know, right, about how pollution would affect microbiological activity. But I would assume the cleaner the air, the better the air. But we specifically picked the location that we're at now, West Deer, because it's a funneled valley with a water source downwind from agricultural precursors that we're specifically looking for. And we've written stuff about that, too. And um, it typically it provides a good scenario to harbor better life. And what I mean by better is microbiologically for beer. That's it. Since uh, well, I do want to talk about your location because it's a great location. But before that, just for our listeners out there who might not know, could one of you explain the difference between a kettle sour and and a spontaneous ferment? Um, so, I mean, there's there's a couple different varieties of sours that are out there right now, right? So, uh, I think everyone's pretty familiar with kettle sours being um, like an industry style standard, essentially. So, kettle sours are a um, it's you know you brew your your wort like you, you typically would, um, and then you inoculate it with a strain of lactobacillus. And so, if you're familiar with like yogurt cultures and, and things of that nature, or like pro probiotics, it's basically the same thing. Um, and then what, what they'll typically do is they'll pitch that, uh, and then that lactobacillus bacteria will actually uh, convert and then acidify that wort. And then what standard brew houses will do is they'll take it once they've reached their final pH, they'll take it and then they'll they'll boil that wort and then kill off that strain of, of lactobacillus. And that's something that we're kind of against. Um, yeah, you're shaking your head, Dennis. <laughs> I am because it's ridiculous. Why would you kill something yeah. to create something so beautiful? Why would you kill yeah. it? That's incredible. Exactly and bread is a pretty sturdy yeast, right? It's not as like kind of like picky as uh, the, what's the other one called? Saccharomyces. Sure. But those, these, these are like vastly different organisms, right? So like lactobacillus typically, now there are some substrains that will ferment uh, slightly, but typically lactobacillus, uh, its primary goal or objective is, is to consume a little bit of sugar and then it converts that sugar in into, into acid. And so that, that's where like you see uh, like, like yogurt uh, is, is a huge like thing that has lacto in it. Um, but anyway, so the, the the premise essentially is that they'll they'll pitch the lactoculture, get it to the appropriate pH, boil it, and then they'll pitch a, another strain of Saccharomyces to actually ferment the wort off and create the alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, that that's something that we kind of we we 
we don't we don't do at all um we don't do kettle sours it's something that we don't really believe in as far as like killing off those strains um so what we'll do if we use lacto in in that sense is we'll we'll let them co coexist essentially and so like we do have some beers that are in, in our line that that are, are co, co-fermented with live culture lactobacillus and with certain strains of, of saccharomyces for sure and then moving into like other wild-based culture or, or spontaneous fermentation. Um, so spontaneous fermentation, as Dennis had, had touched on earlier, uh, in, at least for us, is through the utilization of, of a cool ship. Uh, so during those those cooler months when the ambient temperature is below or at 50 degrees, um, we'll, like you said, we'll, we'll run our wort the way that we normally would, uh, and then you collect all the the wild yeast or uh, bacteria that, that's within the air uh, and so this is i think the other thing too to like point out is is it's using the term bacteria the this is this is like good like like pro probiotics essentially uh or, or things that you would commonly find on like fruit and, and things like that um so they they basically will much like other yeast they'll, they'll add that different uh texture and, and and flavor profiles to to that wort so it's kind of a really cool thing where you can as dennis said you can see vintage to vintage from year to year what was in the air what we were able to capture what was in those barrels and how how it actually presents itself so yeah awesome um well that sort of leads me to to my next question here which is about your location because a few years ago you opened up your second location which is actually where where you brew as opposed to the tap house which is you know right outside the city here uh where's your brewing location is about 40 minutes north or so and it's it's a beautiful location it really feel like you're sort of nestled back there and i know you guys do some some foraging and stuff like that and it's it's really big and you guys obviously put a lot of time and and energy into it could you just talk a little bit about your new space and sort of maybe how that plays a role into the beers that you make um i, I mean as far as that location like just to kind of like hark on like what dennis had just said previously was it's you know we're we're kind of we're kind of removed from the city a little bit um, out in, in West Deer. Um, and, you know, when you're rolling through and, and you have the windows down, the air quality, it smells like it's the country a little bit. You get like that nice, like honeysuckle in the summertime. You get all of, like those like great, fresh, clean air smells and feels and stuff. So I think that a lot of that does translate uh, as far as, you know, yeast character. Uh, I would imagine that, you know, that yeast is, is, driving itself towards those food sources. So, you know, cleaner air, more more flowers and vegetation and things like that are, are gonna create a better populace, so. A lot of people wanna know when you're done with the beer. So it really kind of tells us when it's done. So what happens is, is first of all, we got great people. We have phenomenal people. Max Morrow is one of the best blenders I've ever run into in my entire life. And I was just hanging out with him like two. I went down to your uh, tap room and he was there and we were hanging out, having some beer. Max is the best good guy. And and George starts (laughs) off with a great base for him. George Kepler, great brewer, pulls it all together for Max. Max then puts it into barrels and Max really starts to tell me when it's ready. And he'll say, then I'm starting to get these things, these uh, intricate things in the beer that tell me that it could be done. Then you look at viscosity, then you look at clarity. So there's, there's indicators. And the worst part about it is, is you can't document it in a book. It's all intuition. It's that's truly the, the, uh, I gotta be honest. Yeah. And Max, Bert knows this. Max has simple little tricks that he does even that I never created or never worked with or anything because you got to keep in mind 
when we started doing a lot of these projects or even prior to that, even when I started into this type of thing, there was a pamphlet book about this thin and it had an orange cover and it said Lambic on it. Does anybody remember that? It was the only documented understanding of sour beer ever. And it lasted until finally they started actually writing about it. And that's all you had to go off of. So a lot of these guys that are around even now today are built off of intuition. And that's the best way I can say it is, is that you just have to know when to blend it, when to pull together. And when it's in many a times, Max will come to me and say, I know you don't taste it now, but in a few weeks, this beer is going to throw THP. And I know it's going to happen. And basically, we got to write it out. And sure enough, a couple of weeks go by, THP, and Bert, and Bert can answer to that too. It'll show up. And Max knew it was going to happen before it even happened. That's intuition. Yeah. And I'm also yeah, wondering, I know a lot of sour beers, they use acidulated malt. Is that the kind of malt you use or what What malt? Wait. Acidulated malt is primarily just used for mash adjustments, right? Yeah. So in the mash, what you're looking for is you're looking for a specific pH range. And it depends on what beer you're making, too, what pH range you're shooting for. So acidulated malt is made in such a way. And from what I understand, I think they actually spray or they allow the lactobacillus to develop on the exterior of the husk. And that's the normal way of doing it or the traditional way of doing it. And by pitching a certain portion of acidulated malt, you can actually lower the pH of your mash, which sometimes is what you want to do for specific extraction points that you're looking for in that mash. So it's not all acidulated malt. Yeah. Um, and then, so how long does it normally ferment? Like I know, like, let's say, you know, a lager maybe takes a month or six weeks. Like, is there a sure. typical time frame? I'm just kind of curious, or does it just totally vary? For wild beers or spontaneously fermented? For spontaneously fermented. You never know. You never know. Because you could be nine months into it and all of a sudden Pediococcus shows its ugly head. And all of a sudden the whole beer is slimy. You got, um, you know, uh, it tastes great, but it pours horrible. And then you're saying to yourself, well, how long is this going to last? And you just, you never know. Because it how could often, do it two or three times. How often so does it happen to you guys? We work in, I'm sorry. What's that? How often does that happen to you guys where you're like, uh, this one didn't work out? Well, wait, are you talking pediococcus or just in general? Um, maybe just in general. Just in general? Very few times anymore. Okay. So in the past, when you had more casks, you had, quite frankly, more diversity, but you had more pigeon points for all these organisms to start infecting more casks. So by cutting down and culling our casks, which is part of the reason why we did it, we were able to keep the best of the best of the best of the best. And even though it's counterintuitive for producing a sour beer, quite frankly, it worked very well. Um, now, I touched on it a, a little bit earlier, but uh, Burke, can you talk a little bit about the uh, the vinegars that have sort of, uh, no pun intended, spawned out of this? Oh. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I um, So when I was still working in the restaurant industry and uh, was doing a lot of home brewing, um, I kind of was playing around with the idea of, of coming out with uh, another, like something else. I kind of wanted to, to start like my own company essentially. Um, and, and I didn't necessarily want to start a brewery um, because I kind of, I felt like, you know, at this point in time, there, there are a mass amount of, of them. And I feel like for me, that, that wasn't really where I wanted to go. Um, and so I was looking for something a little bit different. 
I, I started dabbling with, with making vinegars, uh, and I was working uh, at Cure at the time. And so I started uh, basically cultivating a in-house vinegar program at Cure. And uh, it was very, very small, um, you know, 5, 10, 15-gallon batches here and there. Uh, but that's kind of like where I got started with uh, the thought of, of making vinegars. And so I, I did a number of, of small projects there um, and, and kind of took some of that learned knowledge and, and kind of expanded. And, and part of it was, you know, the reason I kind of got into working in the industry now is I, I love what we do. Um, and so like spontaneous fermentation, wild-based fermentation, that to me is super, super exciting because, you know, I feel like anyone can make an IPA, um, you know, you, you get, you know, really nice, well-rounded lagers and stuff like that, but like to be able to have like those nuances that are found within wild fermentation, it's such a really cool thing to, to taste. It's very um, unique, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I started kind of dabbling with making wild vinegars um, and so I, uh, <laughs> I did a lot of talking and, 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 and kind of did a lot of research. And uh, I, I think I had like a nice like two hour conversation with you on the phone one day when I was like, hey, I think I'm, I'm, I may want to do this like as like a side thing. And you're like, yeah, that's cool. Like, just go ahead. Like, well, uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so like the support has always been there at, at, at work. So that, that's been really cool. So I actually I came out with uh, it's called Native Vinegar. It was it was a few years ago. I I ran into you at that sort of festival thing. Tasted some, um, bought a bottle for uh, my mom yeah. for Christmas that year, and uh, she loves it. Yeah, I think it was yeah. the is a toasted walnut. Walnut is that the flavor? It's been a, it's been a while. Yeah. So I a lot of a lot of the vinegars that we produce are um, so they're all spontaneously fermented. They're all with you know that same you know Western Pennsylvania biota that we find within like our spawn line of beers at at, at Stranger. But I took more of a focus to foraging. It's something that I really love. Uh, I mean, I grew up in the sticks. So for me to like get out in the woods and like find stuff that's edible in your backyard is like pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So there's also this. Yeah, what's what? up? 717. Oh, oh, right. Yeah, because we, we I, I totally forgot. We grew up in the same uh, hometown, more or less, more or less, same county. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. I don't have a 717 yeah. number anymore. Sorry, friend. <laughs> yeah. So, guys, as Sorry. we are kind of wrapping up here just a little bit, I'm curious to know what your ideal day off in Pittsburgh would be. Bert, why don't you go ahead and let us know what your ideal day off in Pittsburgh would be, and then we'll kick it over to you, Dennis. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, if I feel like there's there's a ton of restaurants that are always popping up, new bars and, and cool places to go hang out. Um, so just kind of Googling those things. And then, you know, whenever you get a day off, you, you go out and you get to try some of the net new stuff. That to me is, is really cool because I feel like, again, Pittsburgh is a huge hub and there's a lot of cool stuff that's going on around here. So, yeah, it's good to get out. Dennis? I mean, honestly, I'm a dad, so whatever my kids <laughs> want to do is what I end up doing, right? But I love food. I really do. I love food and beer. So anywhere new that's trying something interesting, I'm totally into it. Cool. So just getting out because there is always a lot of new stuff opening up here in Pittsburgh. And that's one oh, of the yeah. things I like about it. So just trying out new places is definitely a, a great answer to what would you do on your day off in Pittsburgh? Yeah, great. It's an awesome city. And that's so cool about your vinegars, Bert. I love that. You guys are such entrepreneurs. This has been one of the most interesting interviews. <laughs> 
I've, I've ever done. Like I, I have more questions, so I might send you guys emails after this. Um, also as we wrap up, it is time for our rapid fire questions. So guys, your goal here is to not think just answer. And Dennis, I'm going to start with you and then Bert, you can go after. Are you ready? Yep. Do it, Molly. All right. Dennis, best shower beer. Stella Artois. Bert? Mm. PBR. Oh, that's a rough one. (laughs) It's a rough shower. I love PBR. I actually- It's good though. Hey, let's know. It's great fishing beer. All right. Next one. Best hangover cure. Eating twice and taking a nap. Fair enough. Uh, I'm a big fan of the uh, Angostura lemon and sugar uh, thing. Hmm. It's a thing. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. I didn't know that that? one. I love bitters, though. I drink bitters and soda all the time. I I would probably drink it straight. I love bitters. (laughs) Dennis, current favorite beer style that you are loving? I'd say uh, a lot of the tart bursts that we have coming out recently. I just, I, I know it's my beer, but at the same time, I've been crushing them. They're just really good. That's, I don't know. That's it. That's what I got right here. Yeah, <laughs> me too, man. <laughs> uh, I definitely, I really, I, I love lagers. I think lagers are having a nice like resurgence right now, which is fantastic because I love me some dad beer. Oh yeah, Modelo's. Modelo's yeah. are good. Guilty pleasure. Good. Cool. Um, how about this? Beer style you wish was more on the menu. And this could be for strangers Saisons. or just sort of anywhere. Saisons? Saisons. Yeah. yeah. Cool. You're, you're saying that too, Bert? Yeah, for sure. Okay, great. Yeah. I always want a Schwarz beer. I always want like a nice like black lager. Oh, those are delicious. But this isn't about me right now. Last question. Um, Dennis, if you could have a beer with anyone in history, alive or dead, who would it be? Nikola Tesla. You're quick on that answer. I like it. I'm right. <laughs> genius. He is, yeah. I don't even know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Pat. Do you want us to stall? I <laughs> thought Dennis was going to say Nicolas Cage, and I was about to <laughs> What? <laughs> oh, my God, I thought that's what you were going to say. Whatever. I was going to mute you. No one from Hollywood ever impressed me. <laughs> Only science people and stuff, people that do important things. You're like, Nicolas Cage, he was so good in no. Face Off. Remember that brilliant cinema? <laughs> I do. The 90s A huge Nick Cage uh Netflix-a-thon recently. So, yeah, I would totally have a beer with that dude. So, yeah. Nick Tesla right. and Nick Cage. Perfect. <laughs> Terrible. Now, that is what I want to see for face-off. There's wow. Nick Tesla. Yeah, that would be a good one. That would be a good one. <laughs> I'm, I'm like a huge Woody Harrelson fan, and he has a ton hmm. of bad movies, and I, I've seen them all, and, you know, somehow I like them just just because he's in it. But uh, <laughs> Dennis and Bert, it has been such an absolute overwhelming pleasure to have them. Uh, likewise. Thank you so much. Is there anything you guys would like to plug or just sort of any upcoming events you guys have going on at strange roots no uh bert i guess all i'm saying is anybody that's actually listening or that will listen to this if you're a home brewer please experiment please try what's in your local environment and if you find anything interesting please by all means reach out to me because that's where the stick comes from everybody thinks that home brewers all have any skin in the game, but in reality they do because they have more diversity available to them and more experimental sides to doing it. And honestly, that's how Bert came up with the vinegar company, quite frankly, too, is, is that he had a really cool idea and he took something that 
a lot of people would never see and look it flourished and they're spectacular unlike anything else i've ever eaten thank you yeah. now, awesome go ahead bert I, I, I was just saying thank you yeah uh i i would like to just piggyback on that i mean that's that's where I think a lot of, you know, my creativity came from was just from homebrewing. It was being able to have a chance to, to do those small batch fun things that are exciting and creative and keep pushing things forward. So that's something that I look for, um, you know, as now in a professional that's doing it in, in that industry. So yeah, for sure. So, creativity. And I just want to say one other thing. It's not conflicting if you make a brewery because of it, it's conflicting if you don't, further the science and that's why i'm saying go out and see what you can find go out and experiment and see find something new because it's furthering the science of what we all want anyway which is to expand beer beyond where it is and break that envelope to find something interesting and you might be able the person to find it and if you are good for you you guys are the most damn inspiring people. Yeah. I swear. I've gotten Wise chills words. like three times. Wow. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. Like, we mean it. I, I don't know. I know you do. That's yeah, yeah. Your whole approach, Dennis, is so unique. And Bert, you have such a creative vision. You guys are amazing. Thank you all so much for tuning in today. Thank you to my wonderful co-host, Eric, and my awesome guests, Dennis and Bert. Be sure to visit Strange Roots next time you guys are in Pittsburgh. You will not regret it. Be sure to tune in next week as we chat with Debbie Stuber, who is the Director of Community Relations at Brew the Museum of Beer in Pittsburgh. This is our first and maybe ever beer museum that we're going to be talking about on the podcast. So I'm super pumped about that. See you all next week for our last exploration of Pittsburgh. Cheers. Good night, everyone. Cheers. Thank you all Thanks so much. Bye, Thanks, Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you all so much for tuning in. It's always a blast having a beer with you. Don't forget to sign up for the Brews Less Traveled Beer Club, and this way you'll get the beers I've been drinking delivered right to your doorstep, plus exclusive access to our weekly live streams. You can also follow Bruvana on Instagram and me as well at molly underscore Bruce Traveled. I always love hearing from you guys, especially if it's a beer recommendation. So keep the messages coming. Cheers.